This is the story of the biggest theft in history. The big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. A Kremlin clique that runs the country like its own personal bank, a clique of bandits. It's also the story of how Russia is using every part of its state machinery in a war many of us don't even realise is taking place to subvert democracy worldwide. In today's episode, the callous violence of the Putin regime. They put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed. And then eight riot guards came into that cell with rubber batons and beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. I'm Gavin Esler, and in The Big Steel, we're telling the extraordinary story of how in one generation Russia went from communism to kleptocracy. At its heart, how the Russian government stole the country's biggest oil company, Yukos, from its shareholders and put the man at its helm in jail for 10 years. Mikhail Kordakovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Kordakovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. The principal beneficiary of the big steal is Russia's president, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, and his behavior is ruthless. If we look at the spate of assassinations, and I'm not just talking about you know, the Skripals and Litvinenkos that we know about, but the, the Chechen fundraisers gunned down in, in Turkey and so forth, I mean, this is clearly not a man who has a problem with violence. At the end of a long Kremlin news conference, Putin makes an off-the-cuff comment. He mentions to a journalist that Khodorkovsky has written a letter appealing for a pardon, citing humanitarian factors. His mother is ill. Putin says he's minded to grant the request. One day later, on the 20th of December 2013, Mikhail Khodorkovsky is free, released by presidential pardon. He'd served 3,709 days in prison, just over 10 years, and had been subjected to two separate show trials. Khodorkovsky flew directly to Berlin and on the 22nd of December gave a press conference at the Checkpoint Charlie Museum, a symbol of the Cold War divisions between Russia and the West. Khodorkovsky issued a brief statement upon his release. The issue of admission of guilt was not raised. I would like to thank everyone who has been following the Yukos case all these years for the support you've provided to me, my family, and all those who are unjustly convicted and continue to be persecuted. You should not regard me as a symbol that there aren't any political prisoners left in Russia anymore. I ask you to regard me as a symbol that when civil society wants to accomplish something, its efforts are capable of bringing about the release of even those people that nobody ever imagined could be released. We just need to continue to work towards the goal of ensuring that no political prisoners remain in Russia and indeed in any other country in the world either. At any rate, I intend to fully do everything I can towards achieving this goal. I have no plans to return to my business career. I believe that in terms of my business career, I have got everything out of it that I wanted to. My financial situation doesn't put me in a position where I would have to work just to earn some money. 
with this point of view in mind, the time that I have left for an active life, I would like to dedicate to paying back debts to those people who are in a worse situation than I am, meaning those people who are still in jail, and to those in our Russian society who are in need of a little change so that we can live a better life in Russia. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, in some ways, this is where it really begins. Because alongside Mikhail Khodorkovsky, many other lesser-known employees and associates of Yukos were arrested. Vasily Alexanian was head of Yukos's legal team until 2003. He returned to the company on the 1st of April 2006 and became vice president. Five days later, he was arrested. Yukos was being forced through a state-orchestrated bankruptcy process. Alexanian's attempts to protect the company's rights were not going to be tolerated. He was charged with tax evasion and embezzlement, the usual charges for business leaders who fall foul of Putin, charges that he strongly denied. Here's Vladimir Karamurza, chair of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation and a human rights activist. So Vasily Alexanian was, was uh, a lawyer. Yukos, and he was, you know, for many years in charge of the kind of all the legal uh, legal work at the company, including when Mikhail Kharakovsky was first called for questioning as a witness by the Russian Prosecutor General's office. Uh, Alexanian went with him. Uh, he then became a vice president of Yukos. That was already when Mikhail Kharakovsky was in prison, uh, and of course, eventually he was arrested himself. And I think of. All the victims of the Yukos case, of everyone who has, you know, gone through this ordeal that the Putin regime began in 2003, you know, there's no fate more tragic than that of Vasily Alexanian, a young, successful professional who was, I mean, let's call things for what they are, who was basically killed uh, by the Putin government, who lost his life to the Yukos case because he was uh, gravely ill while in prison, and the prison authorities, the Russian authorities, were deliberately denying him medical care uh, because they were demanding uh, incriminating uh, false testimony against the uh, Yukos management, primarily, of course, against Mikhail Khodorkovsky himself. And Vasily Alexanian simply refused to perjure himself of others. He, he refused to give false testimony, and so they kept him in prison. Uh, they kept him in prison while he had at least three grave medical conditions. They kept him in prison in direct violation of rulings by the European Court of Human Rights. They kept him chained, handcuffed uh, to a bed when he was eventually uh, allowed to go to hospital. And then he was finally released basically only to die at home. Uh, and he died very shortly after he was released from prison. So, um, frankly, when we speak about the regime of Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, most people talk about the corruption and the election rigging and the media censorship. And yes, of course, the political prisoners. But let's not forget uh, that this regime is responsible for the deaths of many human beings. Let us never forget that. And Vasily Alexanian is one of those people. Video footage of Vasily Alexanian is truly harrowing. He was allowed to suffer and waste away. His crime? There was none. 
And while Vasily died at the hands of the regime, there is even now one Yukos employee still incarcerated, Alexei Pichugin. He's currently the longest-serving political prisoner in Russia. Vladimir Karamurza again. He was arrested in June of 2003. He's now in the 17th year of his life sentence on charges that are not corroborated by any kind of evidence that has been confirmed by uh, you know, those courts in foreign countries that were asked to rule in this case. The real reason Alexei Pechugin is in prison is just like in the case of the late Vasily Aleksanyan, uh, is because the, the Russian government, the Russian authorities are trying to get incriminating uh, false testimony against the leadership of Yukos. And Alexei Pechugin is just refusing to give them that. As far as I know, he's uh, somebody with strong religious beliefs. And of course, to give false testimony is, is a sin, specifically prohibited by the commandments. And he's just steadfastly refused to sign this false confession, which, which would give him his freedom. It's been made clear to him on, on many occasions. But he is refusing to do this. Alexei Pechugin is being kept uh, in a penal colony in, in prison in violation of two rulings by the European Court of Human Rights and in violation uh, of a very unequivocal decision by the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention that has demanded his immediate and unconditional release. And, you know, from what we can see now, uh, it looks like he will remain in prison until the end of the current regime in Russia. Although having just said that, many of us, myself included, were certain that Mikhail Khodorkovsky would also remain in prison while Vladimir Putin remains in the Kremlin. And thankfully that is not the case, and which I think just goes to show how powerful and how important and how consequential sustained international pressure on the Kremlin can be in securing the release of political prisoners. This was the case back in the Soviet times. And uh, we see this more, more recently as well. Um, one of the major reasons that Mikhail Khodorkovsky uh, was pardoned and released was uh, personal advocacy by uh, the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. While Alexei Pechugin remains in prison and Vasily Alexanyan was allowed out only when his death was imminent, there is another case that is even more shocking. It concerns Bill Browder. Bill is the American-born businessman who, fresh from Stanford, decided to do business in post-Soviet Russia. When it comes to Putin, Bill gets straight to the point. There's no question in my mind that he is a total and absolute criminal, and he's made more money from his crimes than any other criminal in the history of crime. The loathing is mutual. In a truly bizarre moment at the first ever summit between President Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, Bill Browder got a name check from the President of Russia. To understand why Browder so irritates Putin, we need to go back to Bill's successful career investing in Russian businesses. At first, Bill thought he and Putin might have a common enemy, the corrupt oligarchs who had a stranglehold on so much of Russian business. Some tried to steal from Bill himself. But as Bill told me, like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, he was soon to find out which side Putin was really on. 
the site where the most money and power could be secured. I was doing something which was unforgivable, which is I'm going after the oligarchs one by one by one, exposing all of their dirty laundry, um, which had, had had a great effect while Putin was fighting with the oligarchs. And, I, we, and we were making huge money and, and being very successful and making Russia a better place. Um, but all of a sudden, the, the landscape and the incentives have changed. Once he becomes business partners with the oligarchs, and I'm going after the oligarchs, and I'm continuing to go after the oligarchs, I'm no longer going after his enemies. I'm going after his own 50% personal financial interest. And that was the moment that it became no longer tolerable for him that I was doing what I was doing and that I was even in Russia. Were you reaching into his profits if he was taking 50%? Exactly. And so, um, and he had a dilemma. And, I, and Putin was a different man in 2005 than he is today in the sense of what he was prepared to do. So if, if he had the same amount of self-confidence and bravado and um, lawlessness that he's able to operate with today, they would have just assassinated me on the spot. But he was not prepared to do that in 2005. His other option um, was to arrest me. But he was also a bit afraid of that because you arrest a high-profile foreigner. I was very high-profile then every government in the world, that would be the first topic of conversation every time they had a meeting. And so he'd effectively be as much of a hostage to the situation as I was. And so they came up with the third best option, but the best option for them at, the, at that moment in time, um, which was um, to expel me from the country. Bill Browder's expulsion from Russia didn't end the conflict with Putin. Instead, it made it even worse, not just for Bill, but for those honest Russians who tried to help him. Tell us about Sergei Magnitsky. Tell us who, who he was and, and what he did. So Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. Um, he did a lot of legal work for us over a long period of time, but he really came into his own in 2007. In 2007, after I was expelled from Russia, my offices were um, raided by the police. They seized all of our corporate documents. They raided our law firm's office, seized the corporate documents there. And then the police, working together with corrupt officials and organized criminals, um, orchestrated highly complex corporate identity theft, where they stole the corporate um, entities that we, through which we had invested in Russia. And I should point out that at this point, after I was expelled from Russia, we no longer kept any money in Russia. So these were empty corporate shells. But the police stole these shells. And I was concerned that the police, working with criminals, raiding our offices, stealing our companies, um, could lead to all sorts of terrible legal consequences. And so I decided to um, hire Sergei to investigate this this. Um, theft. And Sergei investigated, and he came back with the most remarkable uh, finding, which was that the police had raided our offices, stolen our companies, with one unbelievably cynical objective, which was that in the previous year, um, we had paid to the Russian government $230 million of taxes, capital gains tax. We had paid those taxes when we had liquidated our portfolios. And um, 
What Sergei had discovered was the $230 million of taxes that we had paid was fraudulently refunded by a group of corrupt officials and organized criminals two days before Christmas 2007 um, with effectively no questions asked. It was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. The money was refunded to our companies that had been stolen from us. Um, and Sergei figured it all out. It was never supposed to have been figured out, but Sergei was so smart. He was, he was one of these genius um, investigative lawyers. He figured it out. And Sergei and I, we tried to figure out what we should do about it. And, and we both had the same thought, which was that the money was stolen wasn't our wasn't wasn't my money wasn't my client's money this was the russian government's money this is money stolen from the russian government and sergey and i both thought that putin was a nationalist a patriot you know sort of a guy who cared about russia and if he knew that his own employees were stealing nearly a quarter of a billion dollars from their own government he should come to, come down so hard on them they wouldn't know what was coming and so we figured the best strategy with this finding and this information was to go to the top people in, in Russia's law enforcement agencies, to the head of the uh, uh, interior ministry, to the head of the investigative committee, to the um, uh, internal affairs department, the people who investigate corruption, and file criminal complaints because we knew who did it. And so we filed criminal complaints. I then went to the press, went to the TV, radio, newspapers, and then Sergey. Um, to formalize the whole thing, gave a sworn statement to the Russian State Investigative Committee, their version of the FBI, and naming names. And we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Well, it turns out, in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. I'll go on a little bit to Sergei in just a second because of the terrible things that happened to him. But I just... People listening to this might think, you don't like Russia, you don't like Russians, you think they're all bad guys. Um, I mean, is that a fair criticism or, or, or what? That, that's completely not true. So um, uh, I'm married to a Russian. Um, almost all the people in my office now, 13 years later, are Russian. Um, my best friends are Russian. Um, the Russians um, are, most Russians, the 142 million people that still exist in that country, are living in an occupied country. There's like a million criminals who have occupied the country and are subjugating and destroying the lives of everybody else there. I got nothing against Russians. I like them very much, but but I'm absolutely um, appalled by the criminal regime of Vladimir Putin and all the people who support, promote, and enable his regime. Now, one of those good guys was Sergei Magnitsky, a Russian based in Moscow, who took on his own government. What happened to him? Well, um, <clears throat> so a after he testified about the police officers, he named the names of the police officers who seized the documents that were used in this fraud. Five weeks later, the same officers came to his home on the 24th of November, 2008. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention, where he was then tortured to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates in eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells um, with, with um, no heat 
and no window panes. In December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They'd move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against these corrupt police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million. And he did so on my instruction. And they, they expected, here was a guy who wore a blue suit, a red tie, and a white shirt. He bought his Starbucks coffee in the morning. He goes to a fancy Western law firm where he sits in his cubicle and does his legal work. They figure this guy, within a week of being put in with hardened criminals and all this duress, would roll over and do whatever they asked him to do. And whatever the visual image is that they had of Sergei, um, what they totally misjudged and underestimated him. And Sergei Magnitsky was probably one of the strongest, morally upright people I've ever met. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was much worse than any of the physical torture they were subjecting him to. And he refused to recant his testimony against these corrupt police officers, and he absolutely refused to sign a false confession. And as a result, the uh, oppression, the persecution, and the torture got worse. And after about six months of this, Sergei started to develop terrible pains in his stomach. He, was, he, he lost 20 kilos, and he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones. And he was scheduled to have an operation on the 1st of August, 2009. About a week before the operation, the, um, the same people came to him again with the same false confession, asked him to sign it. Again, he refused. And in retaliation, they abruptly move him from the prison that had the medical facilities to treat him to a maximum security prison called Butyrka. Butyrka is considered to be one of the roughest, most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, there are no appropriate medical facilities there to treat his pancreatitis. At Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He went into a terrible downward spiral of agonizing, constant, ear-piercing, untreated, pancreatic pain. Most people, if they were um, in the same situation, couldn't last two hours before going to the emergency room to, getting, to get morphine. They left him untreated for several months. And the situation got worse and worse and worse. He and his lawyers became desperate. They wrote uh, uh, written requests, desperate requests for medical attention to every different branch of the Russian criminal justice system. And every different branch of the Russian just criminal justice system either ignored or denied in writing his request for medical attention. And on the night of November 16th, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they loaded him into an ambulance <clears throat> and sent him to a different prison facility. But when he arrived at the different prison um, that had an emergency room, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed. 
and then eight riot guards came into that cell with rubber batons and beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. That was November 16th, 2009. Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. I got the news very early the next morning. And it was the most heartbreaking, life-changing, traumatic news I could have ever gotten. Sergei Magnitsky was killed as my proxy. Sergei Magnitsky was killed because he was my lawyer. If he hadn't been my lawyer, he'd still be alive today. And when I was finally able to clear my thinking from all the adrenaline, heartbreak, and sadness, to think clearly, it was obvious that I had only one choice, which is to put aside everything else I was doing and to devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energies to going after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And I've been doing that for the last nine and a half years. You might by now understand why Vladimir Putin at his first summit with President Donald Trump was so angry with Bill Browder. And you might also understand why following the corrupt money and attacking money laundering operations in the West is something President Putin and his cronies most fear. Bill engineered what's now called the Magnitsky Act. It became obvious that there was no chance of getting justice inside of Russia. So we said to ourselves... Let's get justice outside of Russia. Well, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And the answer is that the people who killed Sergei did it for $230 million. And they don't keep that money in Russia because as easily as they stole it, it could be stolen from them. They keep that money in London, in New York, in Paris, in Zurich. And I came up with an idea, which was, if we can't get justice for Sergei inside of Russia, let's try to freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed him outside of Russia. And I took this idea to Washington. And I presented this idea to a Democratic senator named Benjamin Cardin. I, I presented the idea to a Republican senator, John McCain. I told him the same story I've just shared with you. And I said, can we ban the visas and freeze the assets of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky? And they said, yes. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. Browder's stubbornness paid off. Countries beyond the U.S. have joined the fight to attack dodgy Russian financial operations. The chess grandmaster, political activist and chair of the Human Rights Foundation, Gary Kasparov, compares Putin to a mafia boss. To stay in power and... Uh, to guarantee the loyalty of his, uh, of his gang uh, from top to bottom. He must, must offer protection to every hitman. That's the way it works. The moment the boss doesn't offer protection to everyone, his authority is challenged because the, it's, it's, it's not a democratic institution. It's not about elections. It's, it's about the strong man just keeping his gang under control. And, uh, and Putin built a mafia state. So I, I always say that every country has its own mafia. In Russia, mafia has its own state. 
Magnitsky law threatens this um, this equation because the mafia boss doesn't show uh, uh, any resolve to to help. Others may begin questioning whether he's still you know he's still uh, the real boss who is defending their interests. So that's why Putin is fighting so fiercely. Uh, uh, Magnitsky law and any any uh, um, legislation in the free world that can uh, threaten these the, the funds that have been allocated by, by Putin's cronies um, uh, in the free world. Kasparov is not the only Russian anti-corruption campaigner to celebrate the effectiveness and ingenuity of the Magnitsky Act. Vladimir Karamurza calls it revolutionary. You know, when we talk about the Putin regime and we talk about the corruption and the human rights abuses and the election fraud and the media censorship and the political prisoners and everything else that this regime is associated with, above all, there is this absolutely fundamental hypocrisy and double standard at the heart of this regime whose operatives, officials and oligarchs abuse and violate the most basic norms of democracy and the rule of law in our country, in Russia. And yet, very much like to enjoy the privileges and freedoms and opportunities and the protections that democracy and the rule of law offer in the West. Because it's in the West, it's in Western countries where these people keep their money, open their bank accounts, buy their villas and yachts and vineyards and keep their families and all the rest of it. So they want to steal in Russia but spend that stolen money in the West. And for years, this situation has been allowed and enabled uh, by those Western countries who are all too happy to see these crooks and their dirty money on their soil and in their financial jurisdictions. This all began to change with the adoption of the Magnitsky Act, first in, in the United States in 2012. Um, I was privileged to have been a part of that work uh, since 2010, when Boris Nemtsov, uh, the Russian opposition leader, asked me to join him in helping to convince members of the United States Congress to pass this act. Uh, and uh, when this finally happened in 2012, uh, I remember that day very well. It was the 16th of November, 2012. It was the third anniversary of the death of Sergei Magnitsky in the Moscow prison. On that day, the U.S. House of Representatives uh, voted the Magnitsky Act into law. And Boris Nemtsov and I were sitting on the gallery uh, up in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives, watching them take this vote. Uh, and, and when it became clear that the vote uh, was positive and that the law will pass, Boris Nemtsov turned to me and said, this is the most pro-Russian law ever passed in any foreign country because it targets those who abuse the rights of Russian citizens and who steal the money of Russian taxpayers. And of course, since the United States uh, Magnitsky laws have been passed in, in Canada, uh, in Estonia, in Latvia and Lithuania, uh, and in 2018 in the United Kingdom. Now, unfortunately, the United Kingdom has not been implementing it at all. And the total number of people sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act in the UK since it was passed in the summer of 2018 is precisely zero. Uh, and I certainly hope that changes very soon because, you know, it is very important to send a clear, loud, an unequivocal message that the crooks and the abusers are not, in fact, welcome on British soil or in British financial jurisdictions. 
Next time on The Big Steal, how does the Kremlin kleptocracy really work? And what do they do with the money they steal? My assessment is that Putin has made a fortune of 100 to $160 billion. And altogether, we account for $800 billion to $1 trillion of Russian dark money abroad. And say that one third of this also belongs to Putin and friends. So this is the biggest kleptocracy that we have seen. We'll have to learn a new Russian word, Radesva the manipulation of the organs of the Russian state, not for the benefit of the Russian people, but for a few of the rich and powerful. How did it all come about, and can it be stopped? Now, Redisfer, originally in the 1990s, was a matter of private groups, gangs almost, fighting to get control of businesses, fighting with machine guns even. But now it's changed, and it's the state, in alliance with some business people, using state powers to grab assets from other business people. Organized crime still plays an important role in the Russian economy, but instead of acting for themselves and profiting from this, they are often acting now as the strong arm for the oligarchs and their families and others who can carry out the corporate raids. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode.